So Halloween is coming up this weekend. And I know just like everything else this year, it's going to look different than in previous years. But I hope some of you still plan to get dressed up, maybe to come to our drive through trunk or treat on Tuesday afternoon, or to maybe just put on a costume and, and walk around your house just for the fun of it. You can always tell, I should say, in most years, you can tell what TV shows or movies are popular, depending on, on how many kids are wearing the same costume when they come to your door. Some years you might see 10 Spider-Men. Some years you might see 10 Stormtroopers. And you can always count on seeing multiple Disney princesses. Now, over the last few years, the Frozen sisters, Anna and Elsa, seem to be all the rage with, with young girls. And I know as a dad of, of two girls and a, a son who loves the movies, I, I should be able to tell the two sisters apart, but I always have to ask my kids for help. Now, the Frozen movies, they aren't just great stories, though they are. They're also full of, of wonderful music. You know, the sort of songs that parents love to get stuck in our heads for weeks at a time. You know, just when you think the song is gone, your, your kid asks to, to listen to it again or to watch the movie, and all of a sudden, let it go just won't let go of your brain. Now, as we wrap up the sermon series that we've been in for the last couple months about engaging uncomfortable conversations in our charged world, there's a line from the second Frozen movie, from a song in the second Frozen movie, that is actually worth getting stuck in our heads. One of the sisters, Anna, is singing a song that's almost a lament. And she sings lines like, Hello, darkness, I'm ready to succumb. She, she's super sad about the world and about the state of life, and she's not really sure how she can move on. And then the song turns to the chorus, and she sings, You are lost, hope is gone, but you must go on and do the next right thing. Now, the song was actually inspired by real-life tragedies from two of the creators that, that happened during the movie's production. So, so what do we do when we're paralyzed by something, by, by the state of the world or, or by an overwhelming situation in our own lives in front of us? One of, the, one of those places where we know we'll be stepping into this uncomfortable space, maybe in a conversation with a family member, with a friend or a neighbor, or, or, or sometimes even with ourselves. And honest things, do the next right thing. And sometimes that next right thing looks really, really small at first. It's in line with what Sarah read from our first passage this morning, where the kingdom of heaven is like a teeny tiny mustard seed that's planted and it grows into a massive tree, or like yeast that's mixed into 60 pounds of flour to become dough for delicious bread. We bring glimpses of God's kingdom into today's world by taking small steps, by doing the next right thing in times of uncertainty and in uncomfortable spaces and in uncomfortable conversations. So as we have journeyed together through this series, my intent hasn't been to ask us to jump into the, the deep end of the pool of politics and racism and economic disparity, but I am asking us, I am asking us as a congregation 
to learn how to swim. Our, our, our second scripture this morning comes from a conversation between Jesus and his disciples right after he preaches his last sermon in the temple. They, they walk out of worship and they're walking in the streets of Jerusalem. And Jesus, he, he kind of points around to the walls of the buildings and he say, says, you, you see them? Did you see these buildings? One day they're going to crumble. It's all going to come crashing down the world that everyone knows. It's going to crumble. Now he's trying to prepare them for what's, what's coming. So he takes them to a, a place where they often went to, to debrief important things, the Mount of Olives, which kind of overlooks the city. And he talks with them about the future. And about how no one really knows the time or the date of the Messiah's second coming. And then he talks about how the present, what, what they did in the then and there, impacted and impacts the future. Really, he invites them to do the next right thing. Starting at Matthew 25, verse 31, he says this. When the Son of Man comes in his glory... And all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right hand, on his right, and the goats on his left. Now, Jesus' metaphor here, it, it might not make a whole lot of sense to, to many of us today, but, but it would have been very, very clear to those who were listening in the first century. Sheep and, and goats, they were often kept together during the day. They might be out grazing together during the day. But when they were brought in at night, they were separated. Goats had to be brought inside because it was too cold for them outside. They didn't, they didn't have the sheep's wool to stay warm. So, so Jesus' followers... They would have pictured a shepherd going out at dusk right as the sun was going down, looking over his animals, looking over the herd and saying, sheep, sheep, goat, sheep, sheep, goat. Almost like a, a real live version of duck, duck, goose. The, the picture that Jesus paints here, it, it might make us feel uncomfortable. I, I imagine it did for those who heard it when Jesus shared it for the first time as well. He continues, starting at verse 34. Then the king will say to, the, to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. So the king extends this invitation to come, to come and to take this inheritance, to be a part of God's kingdom. It's the same invitation that Jesus extends to his first followers, the same invitation that we respond to today. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you, a, see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? 
When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Jesus goes on to paint a pretty bleak picture for those who didn't offer a drink, for those who didn't welcome the stranger, or those who didn't look after the sick or visit the prisoner. So over the last couple of months, our session and staff have been looking a bit at an initiative created by our denomination. It's created a few years ago that's built on Jesus' words here in Matthew 25. It aims to encourage churches to engage in the world today by, by taking a deep look at how we follow Jesus, how we share our faith with others, and, and how we approach issues around structural racism and what we are doing as a denomination to combat um, poverty. In other words, how are we responding to those who are hungry, those who are oppressed, those who are imprisoned, those who are poor, the, the people who Jesus mentions as brothers and sisters in this passage. Now, as our church leadership talked through this initiative, we realized that a lot of it lines up with our our vision and values as a church. And a lot of the language supports our our strategies, especially as we kind of map out our direction in in this rapidly changing world. But Jesus' words here, they're not about creating Church programs, it's so much more than that. They're about creating a particular culture, which is what we're striving to do here. About creating a culture that's committing to a lifelong journey of growth, a lifelong journey of discipleship. Now, sometimes it's really easy to over-spiritualize what we do in the church. We think of God's kingdom in kind of big, massive scales. We think of it having to do with the future, having to do with heaven, or we think of of big miracles, and it involves all of those things. And the call here, though, is to be faithful even in the small things, to do the next right thing. Jesus doesn't say, I was sick and you completely healed me, or I was in prison and you came and broke me out of jail. It's, I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and, and I was in prison and you came to visit. Martin Luther, uh, the reformer, was, was commenting on this passage and, and he said this. He said, you know, every home is a little hospital where a loving parent performs all the ministries of the rest with children, spouse and extended family. Th- these tasks are a part of what we do in everyday life. The, the list that Jesus gives are tangible things we all can do. It's an invitation to be a little uncomfortable in order to bring small glimpses of God's kingdom into a world that desperately needs those glimpses. So he starts with the most basic need, food and drink. We have so many opportunities to respond to Jesus' invitation here, just within our church. Over the last few months, our our serve team, which is comprised of our, our, our mission committee and our board of deacons, has organized multiple food and blood drives it has invited us to participate by by creating lunches for our mission partners and, and right now that that same team is raising support to put a hundred thanksgiving meals on the tables of folks in our community who desperately need them 
That's what we're doing with our, our Thanksgiving card ministry that you'll hear about in a bit. And then Jesus says, I was a stranger and you invited me in. I was in need of clothes and you gave them to me. One translation says that Jesus here says, you brought me into your family life. You took me into your home. It's almost the image of a foster family. The summer before my senior year of high school, a pastor at our home church asked my parents if they would be willing to house a high school girl who was my, my same age uh, in our house for her senior year as well. She needed a place to stay. And today I'm, I'm absolutely embarrassed by how angry and frustrated I was by their response that they welcomed her in. My sister was away at college. It was my senior year. It was my turn. It was my house. It was my family. It was incredibly short-sighted and selfish of me. Now, years later, when that same girl got married, she asked my dad to walk her down the aisle, and two of her kids are named after my sister and me. What does it look like for us to take Jesus' words here seriously, to welcome people, to welcome people in all of our our spaces, to, to invite them into meaningful community, What does that look like in our church, in your homes? What does it look like? Jesus ends his challenge with a call to stand up and show up for those who have been condemned or shamed by the rest of the world. Henrietta Mears, who was an influential Christian educator at Hollywood Presbyterian Church for a long time, uh, and who was also the the founder of of Forest Home, a camp that many churches in Southern California absolutely love, she, she used to say that, that every person we meet, every person we meet is dying for a drop of love. And so last week I encouraged us to step into uncomfortable conversations, remembering that every person we meet, every person we talk to, bears the image of God within them, that we're all created in God's image. So what if we, we paired that concept, that we're all created in God's image, with Henrietta Mears' words? I bet our uncomfortable conversations would look a little different. If if we stepped into each of them with the thought, this person is made in the image of God. And and they're dying for a drop of love. This person is made in the image of of God and they are are dying for a drop of love. N.T. Wright, one of my favorite theologians and authors, writes this while reflecting on, on Matthew 25 as he contrasts the kingdom of God with with the dominant kingdom of Jesus' day. He writes, People saw the Christians behaving like this, and they wanted to know why. The world was full, alas, of people who, who didn't help, didn't feed the hungry, didn't care for the weak and the vulnerable. The Christians were modeling a new way of being human. It was and remains compelling. We need to remember that small steps, doing the next right thing, leads to a great journey. Friends, let's be a people who model a new way of living that's compelling. Let's be peacemakers and ambassadors of reconciliation in this this charged world where we're loving well and where we're finding opportunities to share glimpses of God's kingdom everywhere we go. Amen.